This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My guest today is Scott J. Shapiro. Scott is the Charles F. Southmade Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at Yale Law School and the author and editor of a number of books about the law. He's also the founding director of the Yale Cybersecurity Lab. His interests come together in his acclaimed new book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. Hi, Scott. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me, Dorian. So I'm fascinated by what you say in the intro about your own history with computing, where you're sort of like an early enthusiast in the late 80s. Then you turn to the law, just when this all becomes extremely profitable. Right? Yes. And then you come back to computing much later to, to write the book. So what was, your, what was your early interest and then why did it wane? Well, I guess when you're in ninth grade and um, general purpose computers become available for the first time in history and you can write code that does things, it really feels magical. And I just was completely enthralled by it and coded up, you know, all through high school. And then I studied in college and had a kind of a computer company. Uh, it, was, it was actually a real computer company, which I folded when I went to law school exactly at the time that the web had come out. And um, I made the wrong career choice. A, a, a book's not as profitable as uh, <laughs> no, computer no. companies. Um, well, you say in the book that you, you sort of had to teach yourself, you know, hacking in, uh, later in life. Um, what was that like? How, how hard is that? Um, so initially it was incredibly difficult. So right. again, because I had this strong technical background in computer science, I thought, oh, okay, I could pick this up. I was working on issues having to do with cyber war. And I thought, oh, okay, I could, I could learn hacking because I know computers. I, I know how to program. Um, and I was shocked to find out how hard it was to learn. It's hard to learn because a, it's a very young field. Number two, people don't like to talk about a, when they're hacked, because mm -hmm. it's embarrassing. And they don't like to say that they haven't been hacked because then there's a big bullseye on them. So no one talks about it. So I found it extraordinarily difficult to find out how this, how this activity works. And I, I discovered how to do it, which was by watching hundreds of hours of YouTube videos. In, in, in some ways, I was, you know, there is a, a stereotype of the... Um, the sort of bedroom genius, you know, and you um, you talk early on, and as one example, I suppose the first time a lot of people became aware of it was the the movie War Games, where it's just this unbelievable kind of whiz kid. But some of the hackers that you talk about, they don't seem like that gifted. It didn't seem like it required some kind of savant. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's like any activity. There's some people who are really good at it. There's some people that are meh at it. Um, there are a lot of mistaken stereotypes about hackers out there. One of them is this romantic idea of the savant lone wolf, um, somebody who's 
morbidly obese in their basement drinking energy drinks um, with a hoodie. But in fact, hackers are very social people. They're social online, and that is key to their motivation. They want to impress their friends. They want to be known as elite hackers. Of the people that you studied and some you talked to, were there more interesting motives than that? Because that seems almost like quite a basic motive to do it, to do it for clout, to prove that you can do it, almost like just getting the high score on the arcade game, but on a bigger scale. Were there people that had more complicated motives for doing this? Well, certainly nation-state hackers like Fancy Bear, which is the code mm. name for the Russian military uh, intelligence hackers, that's their job. So get up in the morning, go hack, come home for dinner. Um, largely, the people who I study and the people that I've spoken to, they do it out of boredom. They do it for fun. They do it for clout. The reasons that so many of us you know, do what we do because it makes us feel good. It's an enjoyable activity. Well, there was one guy, um, I forget his name, but it was responsible for the, the, the sort of bot army, Internet of Things. Right. Um, uh, Parascha. Right. And he said something which I almost felt like was, you know, confirming the stereotype where he's like, I didn't really realize that there were sort of real people out there. It was just the online world. So were there some stereotypes about maybe somebody that is, is ultra online that, that are true? Oh, absolutely. I think this is a constant throughout all of my research is the sense that if you don't see it happening, you can fool yourself, deceive yourself into believing it's not happening. Well, that's why so many people are mean on Twitter or social media, because they don't see the person that they're insulting. Um, one of the early virus researchers, Sarah Gordon, uh, once said, sure, virus writers write their viruses and release them because they've never seen somebody cry because they lost their thesis because of a virus. Because, you know, a, a, an actual sociopath is someone who, who would see someone cry, but they wouldn't feel anything. So is there something about this that almost systemically makes people who might be very pleasant to their family and friends and, you know, quite emotionally intelligent even, behave in this sort of sociopathic way? Yeah, I mean, I think that is why the online space is so, you know, ugly, it's because human beings, when they don't see the person that they're attacking, can fool themselves into thinking it's not happening. If you see somebody cry because of what you did, unless you're deranged, unless you're, um, you're, you're sociopathic, you're going to be very, very upset. And the people that I've spoken to, they appear to me, and researchers have validated this, they're by and large normal, psychologically and morally speaking. A, a good portion of them are a bit stunted in the mm. sense that, you know, they're, they're uh, immature for their age, but eventually they age out of it. And I just want to just say, we're talking about kind of hackers Largely from the West, there's another group of hackers who are cyber criminals um, who tend to be older, tend to be from less developed economies, um, who are uh, not doing it for the fun, who are not doing it for the clout. They're doing it for the money because they are underemployed. 
Right, because there's these five case studies. They're very diverse. And also they require a huge amount of research. And I wondered how long it took you to settle on the five that would tell the story in its different facets, but also ones where you knew that you could have access to, if not the individuals, then, you know, the trial transcripts, the code, whatever that might be. Did it take a while to get those five? Strangely enough, no. Um, I just picked the five because each of them had an element of mystery to them. There was a question, how did they happen? So the first one was the Morris worm when Robert Morris Jr. released a worm on the internet on November 2nd, 1988 and crashed the internet. And I thought, how does a graduate student crash the internet? Like, how does that work? Right, yeah. Like, you know, why did he do it? Then the second uh, story is the Bulgarian virus factories in the early 1990s. And I was wondering, why is Bulgaria the capital uh, viruses in the world. Uh, third is the hack of Paris Hilton in 2005. And I thought, she's the most famous person in the world, surrounded by people all the time. How did anyone get to her cell phone? Then there's Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, um, which is the hack of the Democratic National Committee in 2016. And that the mystery there was, why didn't the FBI act sooner? And why didn't the DNC um, respond quicker? And the last one was the story of uh, Prostjan, the Mirai botnet, which a botnet is a connected network of um, infected devices. And I, ha I, I remember in October 21st, 2016, um, the Mirai botnet took down the internet. So I didn't have access to the internet um, for the entire day, as many people in the United States didn't have either. And I thought to myself, who, who has the power to take down the internet? Was that the one that started you on the route to the book then? Yes, exactly. It, it did. I thought everyone was saying um, initially that this was Russia. And it's, it's a standard thing. Anytime there's a hack, people will say, it's a nation state. It's the Russians. Um, it's like a reflex. Mm. And when you actually do the research, you find that it's often not the Russians. In my cases, it turned out to be three teenagers. Right. In a way, in a weird way, it's more comforting to think that it is the Russians yes. with a lot of money and manpower rather than just these like random kids, right? Absolutely. It's, and the, the, the wild thing about the last story is that it's this global war between two groups of three teenagers. Mm. Okay. It's three Americans and then three Israelis. Um, the three Israelis um, had cornered the market on a certain kind of cyber criminal scheme called crime as a service, where you could just pay a little bit of money and click and launch an attack. Um, and they had cornered the market on this when they were 14. And the Americans had built a bigger botnet, and they just go at each other, um, causing enormous amount of um, disruption. And I just thought, that is wild. And so I researched all the code, trying to figure out, like, how, how is this possible? And it turns out to be, it's pretty possible, and it's, uh, it happens a lot. It fascinated me how much was covered by this word hacking and that they're different things. And hacking used to be a rather sort of benign word for just yes. very sort of clever coders, I think, in the, in the late 50s. And, Absolutely. And I, I, the language seemed to come about piecemeal. It might be taken from like a sci-fi novel and you get sort of virus from there and worm from there and bug takes off there. And you're sort of critical of the language or sort of saying that the limit of these metaphors 
is it because they're all sort of peacemen and they get assumed and they actually sort of sometimes the metaphors clash or they don't represent what's really going on? Well, yeah. So the language of cybersecurity is the language of pollution, the language of disgust. So you have bugs, you have worms, you have viruses, you have quarantine, you have infection. Um, and I think that while that, that's helpful because there are rough biological analogs to these, um, to, to these things in malware, ultimately it's a barrier for us to think clearly about the phenomenon and especially right. about the people who are involved in it. Um, the language of disgust makes us want to take these people, treat them as evil, deranged, and not think, okay, wait, this is a social problem. How can we effectively address it? That Because they're, they're human beings and they're people and they're motivated by incentives like the rest of us. I'm not advocating that we change our language. I'm advocating um, that we learn more about the phenomenon so that we address it. Because weirdly, and I'm, I'm sure the, the 1990s Angelina Jolie movie Hackers was not a huge part of your research. No. <laughs> but, um, you know, the word hacker, contrary to that language of disgust and contamination, still, still has a kind of like renegade, cool, you know, outsider thing. And in some cases, it seems applicable. And in others, it just seems completely inappropriate. So is that an unhelpful so I will just say that security researchers hate the word hacker. Right. They hate it, um, partly because it's laced with all these kind of romantic lone wolf stereotypes. And also, you know, when you say you're a hacker, what do you do exactly? There, there are all these um, um, specialties within hacking. Um, you know, so there, there are just so many different aspects to hacking. I just do think that when you're talking to general public, mm. if you say hackers, that locates the subject for them. Um, though I would just say in Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, I tried to describe um, how hacking works for somebody who has no knowledge, but also try to show all the different specialties in it. Yeah. Um, uh, so Fancy Bear, all the bears, they had their specialties, uh, which actually I talk about in the in the book. Well, that's, I suppose, the most extreme and, and dangerous example. You know, you made, you made the really good point, which had not occurred to me, is that espionage is legitimate. People expect espionage. They don't expect war. And you're talking, did this cross the line between cyber espionage and cyber war? Is there an agreed upon line? Or is that a question almost that you can't answer because it's not settled? Yeah. First of all, it's not settled. It was the question that brought me into the subject. Mm. I will just tell you what my, my view is. Um, my view is that the laws of war were developed to deal with a particular problem. That is the problem of the immense physical destruction of kinetic war. They were designed for kinetic war to protect um, human physical security. Those rules are really not applicable to the cyber realm where though there are cyber physical systems, computers do um, connect to real world things like the grid. Um, ultimately, hacking is about information security and not only are the laws of war not suited for dealing with information security, but it's not even clear as the species we've developed um, a good understanding of how to protect one another's information security in a fair way. So in a way, 
and this is how I end the book, I said, in a way, we're at the very beginning of thinking about how to protect information security. And I think using the laws of war to decide what's good and what's bad in this realm is, uh, is misguided. Yeah. And even though you do take pains to explain the computer science, you know, this is a story about people, about the hackers and the hacked. And so obviously there, there are errors that can be made. And and I wondered, therefore, if, if a successful virus, specifically a virus, is the skill there really more psychology than coding? It's getting somebody to let the virus in. Because as I understand it, a virus is sort of powerless unless somebody, like a vampire, unless you invite it in. Uh, that, that's exactly right. So one of the big differences between a virus and a worm is that a virus requires user execution, requires you like to click on the link. Mm. It requires you to say, yes, I agree. Um, worms are autonomous. They, they travel on their own. Um, so viruses definitely require human trickery. Um, worms do not. Um, the I love you virus is, I think, the perfect example of this. Um, in 2001, there was a virus that was sent around. Um, it, it was just an attachment that said, um, you know, love letter for you.txt. And people clicked on it because they wanted to know if they had a secret admirer. Mm. I mean, it's that's kind of irresistible, though. Let the record reflect that I resisted it. Um, <laughs> um, um, but... It um, cost $10 billion worth of damage because it tricked everyone into clicking it. Starting in the late 40s with, uh, with John von Neumann and the invention of the stored program computer, right away you say, well, by doing this, it's very important for computing. It also opens up a vulnerability. And so many of these later problems were made possible by a new, a new innovation, a new form of software or hardware, and there's a vulnerability. Are the people creating these better now at thinking, well, they're developing something, oh, there might be this weakness? Clearly not the people that printed the, the toaster manuals, but is this something that just keeps happening throughout history, that they're very excited by an innovation and they don't realize the door that it opens? Yes and no. So yes, people want to make money. Um, you know, it's very hard to predict what the vulnerabilities of a new technology are. That having been said, I think that there is now a sense among software developers, you know, big companies like Microsoft and the like, um, that security is a real concern. Um, and so things have gotten much better. It's just that things are getting much better, but at the same time, new things are coming online. So um, things are getting better and they're also getting worse. Would all five of these be impossible now? Then? Yes. They would be impossible now. Um, the reason why they'd be impossible now is because all the vulnerabilities, the technical vulnerabilities, have been basically solved. I mean, maybe you could still fish um, people, but now people are, you know, political campaigns are using two-factor authentication. It makes it much harder. The fact that all these hacks would be impossible now is not comforting. Um, it's not comforting because we still are thinking about how do we fix the technology rather than thinking about how do we fix our rules and our incentives, our politics, our culture for thinking that this is an unacceptable way to behave or an unacceptable way to um, uh, just to create products, throw this new technology out there mm. and just see what happens. 
Uh, well, thanks so much for joining me, Scott Shapiro. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Fancy Bear Goes Fishing is out now, published by Alan Lane, and strongly recommended. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or reviewing us on iTunes. You can also support us on Patreon, where you'll get episodes early, without ads, and with bonus goodies. Take care. See you soon. Don't click on any viruses. The Bunker was written and presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.